So, disclaimer, we fucked up. I think it's very generous that you're using the word we right now. I think the pronoun, the accurate pronoun would be I, as in I fucked up. But I appreciate you saying we and joining in on the blame because really it was me. But I appreciate that you used we. Uh, Well, I don't know. I feel like I should have picked up on the issue that you will all probably hear like in about a minute, which Mm -hmm. is that uh, Vanessa's audio does not sound the best. It sounds like a tin can. Like I'm talking from a tin can. So we apologize for this audio issue. Um, I apologize for my stupidity. We promise that we are double checking now when we have been recording. We have what we like to call quality assurance processes in place now. Um, Very sophisticated quality assurance. It consists of checking the audio. (laughs) (laughs) Checking. (laughs) Checking the input and output of our mics. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But I hope you guys still enjoy this next episode. We had a great time uh, recording Goodwill Hunting. We wanted you guys to have like our reactions once we finally discuss the movie for the first time, which is why we can't re-record the entire thing. So guys, uh, please enjoy and don't be too put off by the audio. And we were sorry. Mm-hmm. We are. I'm very sorry. everybody welcome to the podcast i made her watch the show where two best friends make each other watch stuff that they might not otherwise i am your psychologically disturbed host vanessa and i am your very very sane co-host stephanie you had no choice but to be the opposite of that i don't know if that's true in real life but in any case welcome to the podcast (laughs) and this week i made a stephanie watch the classic goodwill hunting Yeah, it's my first watch on this. I can't believe that it is. It might have something to do with Ben Affleck. I'm not a Ben Affleck fan. I find Mm -hmm. that he did a very bad job as Batman, which is another thing. I mean, let's see how he does with the Snyder Cut, which is set to come out in a few days. For Justice League, I have thoughts and feelings about this. Doubt that it will change too much, but... Essentially, I am not a Ben Affleck fan, but thankfully there is not a lot of Ben Affleck in this film, but a lot of Matt Damon and Robin Williams. Actually, that's interesting. Okay, well, we'll get to it later, but I'm curious the fact that you're not a Ben Affleck fan. I'm curious what your opinion is of one scene in particular, but we will get to that. So I'm just going to start because I'm really dying to know because I've wanted to make you watch this movie for a while. We'll get to all the other stuff like your ratings and everything. But before we start, I just need to know, how did you like them apples being the movie? I will say I liked it a lot, actually. I I really did. I am very surprised to find out this movie is not about hunting because I did not know that this film was named after the protagonist of the film. I thought this was going to be a hunting film, which I think was 
part of the reason why I had avoided watching it. I don't know. I just thought it was going to be some sort of bonding between like Robin Williams and <laughs> Matt Damon after having trip? like shot like little bunnies or something. That's not what happened, thankfully. But people, Can't get this, is, this, this, is, this is not a hunting film, which is a no. good thing. It's a very good thing. I just want to say I'm not going to criticize you entirely for this because I have watched this movie before. This would be probably my third watch of it. I've seen it a couple of times before. Once, obviously, in its entirety in one sit down. And then probably it's been on TV before and I've just like caught bits and pieces, right? The thing is, I have watched it before. And it wasn't until this rewatch that I was like, oh, the title is his name plus the word good in front of it. Yeah. I don't know why they put the word good in front of it. I was still trying to kind of piece that together at some point and I couldn't figure it out. Maybe he's just a good boy. Yes. So I think it's a couple of things. I guess he chooses the right path in the end or chooses something that's good for him and therefore good will hunting. Maybe also he's been looking his whole life for something positive and meaningful and he's searching for goodwill. He's hunting for goodwill. It's one of those things where, you know, when you analyze a word, let's say, that you've seen a thousand times before, and then you really break it down and you realize, oh, that's spelled so weird. And like, it doesn't have the meaning anymore that you thought it did. Mm -hmm. That's the thing for the title for me. I just kept repeating the title and whatever, and I never really put together what it actually meant, or even that it was his full name, plus the word good in front of it. I assumed it was his full name once I found out that his name was Will and then confirmed it when I believe. So I just kind of made up names for a lot of the other characters because I just kind of kept on forgetting them except for Will's. When his janitor boss hands the professor some sort of card with uh, Will's full name on it. And I'm like, okay, this makes sense. I still was very much struggling to find out the good part, what that meant actually. I'm pretty sure that Ben Affleck or Matt Damon probably commented on it at some point. You know what? I didn't really find a lot about the title. I looked through stuff afterwards because I was kind of curious. I didn't find much on it, but it's certainly a title that sticks. Like it's memorable. It's not my favorite. I feel like it's a little misleading. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a little bit duped. I felt like I was going to watch a movie about hunting and I thought that he was going to be actively searching for something and none of that happened and there were no dead bunnies and I feel duped. Yeah, I feel like all of my misconceptions could probably have been dispelled if I had just read the summary because a lot of this was... (laughs) Yes. was fixed almost immediately when I open up the Netflix thing and I read the summary, which is when professors discover that an aimless janitor is also a math genius, a therapist helps the young man confront the demons that hold him back. There's no mention of hunting in there. So immediately I'm like, oh, okay, there's probably no guns in here. The therapy sessions could have been shooting sessions, target practice. Like when you take someone that has anger issues, build, yeah, anger issues to go and break plates or smash yeah. watermelons. Exactly. Instead, he shoots bunnies, apparently, because your idea of hunting is people shooting rabbits. <laughs> it makes me really sad. I am a meat eater. just don't like to see my food alive. You know what? To be fair, though, I feel like serious hunters go for bigger game than rabbits. Really? Because I know that people eat rabbit out there. 
How do you think they get it? I have had rabbit before. Honestly, it's actually quite delicious. Actually, I have had too. It's like fattier, but it's good. Yeah. I feel like this entire episode is going to be about hunting (laughs) and meat. It's hunting of a different kind. It's hunting for meaning in life. Right. But I mean, if anybody's watched Parks and Rec, Ron Swanson, who would be really proud of this conversation right now. Okay, so we're going to get to the actual meat and potatoes of this. Or oysters. Or (laughs) we're going to get to the oysters of this. (laughs) I don't think that expression will ever stick. (laughs) Six of them, to be exact. I woke up from a nap right before recording this and immediately ate six oysters because those are just things that are lying around in my house to consume. Not really the... I guess it's not the norm, but I feel like oysters, I have never had oysters lying around in my house before, but I think that's actually a flaw. Yeah, it's actually quite a common thing in my house. I kind of wish we had oysters hanging around. I would be much happier right now. Okay, so Goodwill Hunting, where they're not hunting bunnies or deer or oysters. It's a 1997 American drama film directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Robin Williams, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Minnie Driver, and Stellan Skarsgård. It was written, very famously, by Affleck and Damon. And then they won the Academy Award in 1998 for Best Original Screenplay. And the film follows 20-year-old South Boston janitor Will Hunting, an unrecognized genius who, as part of a deferred prosecution agreement after assaulting a police officer, becomes a client of a therapist and studies advanced mathematics with a renowned professor. And through his therapy sessions, Will reevaluates his relationships with his best friend, his girlfriend, and himself, facing the significant task of confronting his past and thinking about his future. That was a mouthful. But you did a very good job. I think I need a swallow now. (laughs) (laughs) Need to cleanse the palate. The movie opens up, and it's like a juxtaposition that you see all the time, actually, throughout the film. Opens up with like a series of images of like books and mathematical equations. Kind of looks. It's actually. (laughs) It brings back traumatic experiences for me. It was triggering. That's what it was. There should be a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode, actually. If you have (laughs) poor experiences with math, chemistry, or anything of the like, please note this episode might trigger you. Well, it's true. I mean, it was played against what sounded a little bit like the Titanic music. I don't know if I just think every, I think flute is that the instrument that's playing? Sure. That, you know, that whistling (laughs) sound. So it's played against that, which is already ominous. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But immediately I see all these equations and the memory that comes to my head is the summer that I almost had to do grade 11 math and the (laughs) the half day of summer school that I did. So I left summer school in the middle of the day and I went to watch a movie with boyfriend who I was dating at the time (laughs) and went on to watch the infamous Avatar The Last Airbender which was somehow worse than if I had stayed and just attended the rest of the day of summer school. Oh, oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, So you saw it that way. I mean, because it's bad. Avatar The Last Airbender, the film is bad. Oh, shoot. You know what I was thinking of when you said that? I was thinking of the movie Avatar. It's not that one, which actually I haven't ever seen. It's It's not that great. I know. I heard it's not that great. I think it's just one of those things that just made a whole bunch of money and just made like zero impact culturally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So um, that brought back memories of high school math. I then went on to do statistics courses in university, which Mm -hmm. I did better at, much better at. So it's opening up on those equations and you get the good juxtaposition of how Will is living. And I guess you could say maybe the life that he could have, you know, because of how smart he is. I thought, you know, it was going to open up on like a library or something, all of those books and papers and stuff. And it actually pans out to him in this kind of disorganized room, mattress on the floor, not many belongings, and he's reading. And then you see his friend Chucky, who's played by Ben. Affleck who's picking him up in this old and rusty beat up car and you see the outside of Will's house and it's dilapidated and they live in clearly a rundown neighborhood and then you counter that with the first images of MIT the lawns are perfectly manicured there's a nice little like river where people are kayaking it's a very big contrast right and Will is actually working at MIT at that point as a janitor Yeah. And then we get into this scene with this professor and he put what is called an advanced Fourier. Fourier? I just wrote, there's a theorem on the chalkboard outside. (laughs) Advanced Fourier spelled F-O-U-R-I-E-R system. And I wrote this down in capital letters, bet. I'm betting myself. Because I like to do this. I I make a lot of predictions. (laughs) I put down, we'll probably be Matt Damon because I didn't know it was actually Will's name at the time. So I just called him Matt Damon. Um, (laughs) So I'm like, he's going to be the one to solve this. And this is how we're going to find out he's the math genius. The professor also mentions whoever solves this will go on to have fame and fortune. I mean, that sounds like a really nice selling point. I think he might be overselling it, but okay. (laughs) So Will sees when he's cleaning the floors, he does see the theorem on the chalkboard and he's looking at it pretty intently. And then later on that day, he meets up with his friends. So Chuck and Morgan, and I don't know who the fourth one is, to be honest. I can't remember what his name is. You did so much better than me. I didn't even remember that Ben Affleck's name was supposed to be Chucky until you just mentioned that. I just kept on writing him down as BA. Oh yeah, I did write him down as that. Well, in my other notes, but for the movie notes, he's a capital C. (laughs) Thank God nobody else had a name that started with C. They meet up at this bar and you get a sense too of like what Will's regular routine is. Pretty boring overall, right? They have, it looks like the same bar that they hang out at in the evenings. Uh, They kind of interact with the same group of people. I don't want to be offensive, but I will say it's maybe not the most desirable selection of women who hang out at the bar. Because Chucky specifically mentions that. But they kind of do the same thing every day or every night. And so Will actually leaves early. He says it's because he's tired. But he's, you can see the next scene, he goes home to start working on that theorem on his bathroom mirror. As these scenes that build up to him actually solving the equation, I'm just writing down, I think I'm right. And then the next note is just satisfying seeing Ben Affleck being hit with baseballs. Because there's this scene that follows afterwards yeah. where they go and play at the batting cages. That's I, part I of their routine. Yeah, I don't know if it's at a fair or if it's like, I've never been to a batting cage. Will starts chucking balls at Chucky. Yeah, to there use the verb chucking for that. Yeah. Well, I finally know his name in the film. <laughs> So, you finally learned it. 
after all this <laughs> after two hours and six minutes look at that oh yeah that's true that is the exact length of the film okay there's a joke in the next scene that i feel doesn't age very well okay there are actually some jokes i don't know if you found this as well that mm-hmm. don't age particularly well in this movie yeah there's some terms that are used that mm-hmm. i won't repeat that would not fly right now they are not good words but there were some kind of like interesting terms that they used i had to kind of like look up so oh. when we when we get to them okay i'll know well like one in particular i had to look up interesting i'm, I'm not sure oh i i might know actually what which <laughs> one you're talking about so it's the scene, the thing that I don't think ages particularly well here is when all the students, there's like some party on the lawn at MIT. And one of the students comes up to the professor and is seeing how somebody solved it. And he's really creepy in that moment. Oh, this is the scene that you're talking about. <coughs> yes. So the professor is creepy and he made a joke about a student, I guess, having drinks with him afterwards. Yeah. And she seems creeped out by it, too. Uh, yeah, it's not acceptable for a professor to be talking like that to a student. No, and he does it later on, too. There's another scene where he's waiting outside the therapy room. There's a some random woman, I don't know who, that he's talking to. He's seeing how, like, math is, like, erotic or something. He's, like, flirting with her. I'm like, oh, this is just... No. <laughs> I personally don't find math super erotic. But also, please leave the female students alone. They may be over the age of 18, but sometimes they could be 17. I don't know. It it does not seem like the students that he's talking to are undergrads. I believe so, because he makes a reference in the initial scene with the class when he introduces the theorem that Mm -hmm. this is something that they may have covered in their undergrad, so it might be a master's course. But that is also a very large master's course. Like, they do not tend to be that big. So I'm not 100% sure. But um, there is a possibility for some 17-year-olds to be thrown in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and I will say this now, just because it's probably a good time. It makes it even creepier for me knowing what company actually picked up this film. Miramax, that's right. Harvey Weinstein. Yep. Yep. It it does add an, like in hindsight now, knowing everything that was going on with Harvey Weinstein, it does add an extra ick factor. Yeah, I felt that. So they're very excited. Someone has answered this question and a professor, so I I write him down as prof. I think his name is Lambeau or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that this equation was done correctly. Mm -hmm. Someone got it. But I wrote down in all caps, is nerds. Nerds, (laughs) because they're all so excited. But no one that's standing around him fesses up to it. He mentions, like, different students by name, and he asks Namesh, and he says no. So this actor, his name is actually Vic Sahay. He's a Canadian actor, actually. And I recognized him immediately because I'm like, he's from Radioactive. So if you were pretty much our age, so we're in, like, our late 20s right now, and you used to watch YTV, this was a show that used to air about high schoolers that used to run their own radio show. And I see, I immediately recognize this guy. I had to look it up to just make sure it was him. And I was very excited to see him. I didn't recognize this at all. But you I did didn't... not watch Radioactive? No. Vanessa, what were you doing? I was watching I, like, this movie. 
(laughs) (laughs) See, it's funny because I criticized you for never having watched it, but then I realized it was actually made in 1997 and we were four at the time. It's not really of our era, I'll say. No, and I knew exactly how old this film was because my brother was born in 1997. So I'm like, oh, this thing's 24 years old now. But it is something that I always knew and heard about and I probably should have watched at some point. But I thought it was a movie Mm -hmm. about hunting. Yeah, again, you thought you were going to see dead bunnies. But I'm very surprised, I have to say, that you were not one of those people that used to watch Radioactive. It was such a huge show on YTV. This is something that Toronto people would know. (laughs) Well, I do not (laughs) at all. (laughs) When you say that word, too, I don't think like radio show. I think of like dangerous chemicals. Well, I don't know if it was kind of like a play on that in the show. It's been several years since I last several <laughs> several years since I last watched Someone's it. Someone's not admitting they're in their late twenties. You know that's a sensitive subject right now. I know. I'm sorry. Okay, so you know what? To ease the pain, let's get back to the nerds who I just want to say I'm thinking about it now. I didn't write this down at the time that I watched it, but I can't be certain that I wouldn't be the kind of person who would step up and take the credit for solving the theorem when I didn't do it. I could see myself maybe doing that. Like, it was me. But don't ask me to do it ever again. I think you would probably write some note and it was like, it was me. Just don't tell the rest of the class, something like that. But to be honest, I think if you had solved it, your penmanship would have given it away. Vanessa has very beautiful penmanship. Like to to the point that in school, teachers would hold it up and say it looked like a typewriter did it. These, this is a direct quote. I don't even remember that, actually. <laughs> to the point that when we were helping my mother make posters for <laughs> this is my some, sort of story. Pro- some sort of protest, I start writing a poster. My penmanship's not bad. People like my penmanship. And my, mo- my mother, the woman that birthed me, that woman that has loved me and provided for me, she said that she liked Vanessa's better and to let her write... I mean, you go with what's most aesthetically pleasing in that situation. I'm still hurt by that. Let the people speak. I did have one embarrassing situation. I think this was in the Bahamas at the piano bar. I submitted because you could submit requests for songs, right? Mm -hmm. Because someone desperately wanted them to play a Michael Jackson song. That's what I wrote down on the piece of paper. The pianist, or was it the singer? Maybe she did both. Literally stopped her performance and said, who wrote this? This is the most beautiful writing. And I sat there slowly sinking into myself. And and so did you put up your hand? No, I didn't. So then, so then we know what you would have done in that situation. You, you probably would have, just as you have predicted, Mm -hmm. not admitted that you're the one that solved the theorem. Yeah, it's true. It was very embarrassing then. It's very embarrassing to think about now. She kept going on. She wouldn't shut up. Eventually, she had to get back to her set. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to get back to the film and away from, you know, embarrassing Vanessa through, you know, praise for her penmanship. You know, you should go on, like, our, like, penmanship porn or something. There's some sort of penmanship porn subreddit, which is not 
like people drawing porn on paper, but it's just like people just writing really nice things, just writing normal words like people's names and like a really nice calligraphy or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just satisfying to watch. But to go back to the film, uh, (laughs) Will and Ben Affleck uh, beat up Will's school bully and Will gets arrested. Yeah. Can I just say, because maybe it wasn't super clear for me this time when I watched Mm -hmm. it. Why did they go after him? So they had initially seen the school bully somewhere else. So you already know that there was some sort of history behind it. I think this is a very big part of Will's character from what I could tell from the film is that He mentioned that this guy was a bully to him, but he didn't pay much attention to him there. It was not until they saw that they were harassing a woman like on the street, uh, kind of like calling out to her and bothering her that he goes with his buddies to beat him up. This comes up in a later scene that we'll talk about. Uh, It seems that Will's very okay with being a wallflower of sorts, kind of just blending in with the crowd, being very awkward until he feels that there's a moment that he needs to defend someone. In that he makes himself very present. And I think that really lines up with what we find out later about his family history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because he literally beats the shit out of the guy. Very badly. And I think assaulted an officer in the process. Yeah, that's what the charge ends up being. That's the one that he goes to jail for. Sorry, I'm just laughing at the fact that I wrote down nerds every time. (laughs) Just to make it clear, if you're good at math, you're probably, you know what, the fortune part isn't that far off. If you're good at math, you're making bank. Mm-hmm. You're That's making- actually Ben Affleck's exact words, I think he says. <laughs> okay, so he's out on bail. He gets picked up by Chucky, and he's back at the chalkboard. And the professor's walking down the hallway and thinks that he's putting graffiti over other people's work. Doesn't entertain the possibility that he might be solving theorems on the board. Yeah, I'm like, how often is graffiti being placed on these theorem chalkboards? At MIT. I mean, you know what? I saw it in school, like people drop penises or something on the whiteboard or whatever. But it's obviously very arrogant of him to just not like never even entertain the possibility that he could be solving this problem the problem that he cannot find anyone to take credit for exactly just because he's obviously in a janitor uniform yeah so will says that he gets fired from the job but he doesn't he just leaves it because he's kind of been found out at that point or as he calls it management restructuring (laughs) yeah (laughs) That's a pretty good scene. So they're talking about that as they go to the Harvard bar. And I don't know about you. I really like this scene bar. I do too. And it goes back to what I was telling you before. So this is the scene where this very uppity Barney is trying to put down Ben Affleck, Chucky, Chuck, one of those two. (laughs) You can say both. Yeah. So he's trying to put down Ben Affleck, who's trying to like hit on some Harvard girls because he, this Harvard guy, believes that he's smarter than Ben Affleck. Yeah. He's Ben Affleck as less than him. At the beginning of the scene, Will is just in a corner, mm-hmm. kind of blending it very awkward. He's kind of like turning around. He doesn't even know where to fit inside the room or like where to place yeah. himself while his yeah. friend is hitting on these girls. But the moment that his friend is being attacked and yeah, so not physically, but attacked verbally, he jumps in 
and demolish it. The shit completely. Yeah. And it was just so satisfying to watch because there's this guy with this Aaron Carter haircut and mm-hmm. like <laughs> it has bruises on his face, you know, who's he's assuming, well, he is he's a blue collar worker mm-hmm. and he knows more about this guy's major than this guy. So yeah, it was an extremely satisfying scene to watch. Yeah. And not only does he basically show that, you know, he's read all of these books, he knows what's in them too, just as well as this douchebag. But he just goes to show like, it doesn't really matter all the things that you can regurgitate. What matters is that you have an original thought on that stuff. And he's like, you know, 50 years down the line, you're going to realize that everything, all of that money that you spend on your education, you could have gotten from the library from just taking out books. But what you haven't learned how to do is think originally. Yeah. And it's that kind of like mic drop moment, or it's kind of like that pretty woman moment where the one where, uh, where, what's her name? She has a name, Julia Roberts. There we go. The one where Julia Roberts... (laughs) goes back to like the store where she tried to buy clothes from and and she's like mistake big mistake yeah huge mistake (laughs) this guy it was kind of was like pretty woman moment (laughs) was his pretty woman i like that i like that a lot (laughs) what's great about this is after completely demolishing him he just goes back to sit down and never interacts with the girls again. <laughs> he doesn't have great social skills. Will yeah. does not have great social skills, as you can see, because I think Skylar comes over to him. He's like, I sat there for an hour and I need to get home now, but here's <laughs> my phone number. Right? She's like, I'm really tired from just sitting on that chair waiting for you. <laughs> he gets this number and they start leaving the bar. And that's when one of his friends uses the phrase, run into a Barney it's like you can like they can't go out and like run into a Barney so I just had to figure out what Barney meant educate us yes so first from Webster's dictionary Barney is an angry argument which made sense at the time I'm like okay it makes sense this guy always seems to be getting into fights yeah but then (laughs) as they're as they're walking they see those Harvard guys eating at some sort of diner, I think. And they mentioned something about like, oh, look at those Barneys. And then I'm like, wait a second. What's a Barney? This <laughs> it's a is a purple dinosaur. <laughs> what is this? So I had to recalibrate my Google search. So I put in Boston slang Barney. And it turns out that it is a Harvard student slash graduate used by the working class. So it's how a working class person from Boston would refer to a Harvard student or graduate. And it is not a compliment. Interesting. That's a very specific term then. Yeah, it it makes sense. I mean, Boston is the home. Has these very prestigious universities. Yeah. I'm sure that there must be constant clashes between these very privileged people that are going to Harvard and then come into town where there are people from all various levels of education and classes. And then they obviously can come into the type of conflict that we saw in that earlier scene. Yeah. It's funny that he says that, though, now knowing the meaning of that term. I mean, they did go to a Harvard bar. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the (laughs) 
Yeah, looking for Harvard girls. <laughs> I'm not sure what you expected to find at a Harvard bar, but, but that's fair. That's fair. And then you have that apples scene, <laughs> which I feel like was a big thing at the time. And now I'm just like, have them apples. How do you like them? Them apples. Yeah. He kind of pushes the napkin with the phone number that mm-hmm. Skylar had given to him. It's like, got her number. Yeah. I feel like people used to use that expression at that time a lot after the movie came out. I don't know that it really carries any weight now. Like, <laughs> I swear if you ever used that as an insult, you would be laughed at. Yeah, I can barely keep up with the current Toronto slang right now. I mean, I don't keep up with it because I constantly have to tell my brother to explain to me what he's talking about. I don't understand half of what he says. I only catch every third word, maybe. (laughs) I can kind of piece things together, but... mm. You had said before that you didn't know the name of the janitor, the head janitor management services man. Yes. (laughs) Which I also don't know. So that's how we're going to refer to him. (laughs) Can we have like some sort of acronym or something? Yes. Head janitor management services man, H-J-S-M. H E just did sorry H H J S M S. I don't know if I prefer that or the the like full on thing. No, sorry, M S M. Oh, M S M. So the H J M S M provides the professor with Will's contact information because the professor is really allowed to do that. I don't know. I feel like that might be a violation of privacy. Yeah, and not only that, disclosing that he's on parole. Absolutely, yeah. But regardless, Professor finds out where Will is, and the next time he sees him is in a courtroom, where Will's trying to defend himself using laws from the 1800s. (laughs) I believe what uh, the judge notes that he got out of an auto theft charge Something about using some sort of law about like horse and horses carriage. and ca- horse and carriage. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> he cites this archaic legal precedent for his charges, but for this one, assaulting a peace officer. That there's no chance. So I think his bail is set at like fifty thousand dollars. And we also hear in that scene that like he's got a pretty long rap sheet. So he's got quite a few charges against him. And he's clearly been through a lot of trauma as a child. So he's been from like one foster home to another and he's been forcibly removed from three of them because of serious physical abuse that's happened. And this is what I really do like about how we get to know a lot of these characters and it's not just with Will's character, it's something that we find out with the professor and also with Robin Williams' character, is that you get to know why they are who they are through little nuggets of information that are kind of left in almost in throwaway lines and scenes. Yeah. This one's like a little bit more direct, but it does make sense that they would, they do this. They go through like your criminal history when you're... Yeah being um charged charged. sentenced yeah Yeah. you see this where it's just like you find out there's some serious physical abuse but it's not something that's mentioned again until later on in the film and the impact that it had on him yeah so but it is something that you want to keep at the back of your mind if you try to look at will's actions through the lens of 
he was physically abused, then you <laughs> understand why he does what he does a yeah. lot more. I think that's how the best storytelling is done, where it's not in your face. They're trying to <laughs> bash the information <laughs> through your head. There's a line that says in, I guess, movie and storytelling, don't always tell, rather show. Yeah, Some- show, don't tell. Yeah. I mean, this one here, obviously, it's being said in words, but it's much more subtle throughout the film than just saying, you know, let's say a therapy session where his therapist tells him, oh, well, you act this way because you went through a lot of abuse as a child and blah, blah, blah. It's not said in that like very straightforward way. It comes out, like you said, through little nuggets throughout the film that you can kind of piece together and then get the complete picture of. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of what we were talking about in last week's episode. So in Vampire Diaries where everyone just talks about how fun Elena used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we never see any of it. I mean, yeah. that was an example of very much telling and not showing and how yeah. much more impactful it can be the other way around. It's exactly. A little bit more subtle, much more effective. So... <laughs> I really like this, actually, how Will calls Skylar from the jail. <laughs> I, I laughed. I laughed out loud. I thought that was hilarious. And then at the very end, just as an aside, asks her if she happens to be pre-law <laughs> and might be able to help him. But he doesn't need to worry about that because the professor is there to save the day. He meets with him in jail and says the judge has actually agreed to release him, but there's going to be two conditions to that release. Number one, Will needs to meet with the professor to work on math equations and other such boring nerding stuff uh, once a week. And number two, he needs to see a therapist because clearly he's got some anger issues and other problems and they need to be resolved. And so Will's fine with the mathematical side of the conditions. He's not very supportive of the therapist side. (laughs) No. (laughs) And we see them blow through a couple of potential therapists. Yeah. He seems to very much enjoy the back and forth between him and the professor, even though the professor does this really weird thing where he pats Will's head like a dog when they solve something. So I found that kind of odd. I was uncomfortable with that scene too. I'm glad to hear it wasn't just me. Again, there are some jokes here that are that don't age well, where he's trying to get out of seeing certain therapists. But anyways, the professor realizes that this is not going to be an easy task and he needs a therapist who's kind of a different personality than the really intellectual stuck up ones that he knows. So he says, I think I know a guy, Sean, I knew him from back in the day. We learn also in that tiny little tidbit, so they used to be college roommates and Sean's wife, Nancy, had died. And so he tells, he meets with Sean and he says, I really need you and I think you could be beneficial because you're from the same background as this guy. And when Sean asks him, what do you mean same background? He says, well, you're Southie from South Boston, right? But I think there's more to it than just that. I think a lot of it is also not just geographical background, but background in terms of maybe trauma that they've experienced. Which is what we find out later, but it is insinuated that there are similarities between them that they're not saying explicitly. There is this scene kind of like right before where Robin Williams' character is talking to a class 
Yes. And he's telling them about having trust with a patient. So he says that if a patient does not have trust, they won't feel safe and therefore they won't feel honest. And I think that's kind of really calling out what the previous therapists were trying to do with Will. They did not work towards gaining Will's trust. They just assumed that they would have it. And like immediately barreled into what's your problem here. Yeah. When this is not the way to approach the situation, Mm -hmm. Will has no reason to disclose his history or what he's feeling to these people that somehow feel entitled to that information. Mm -hmm. And that also includes Lambeau, the professor. It's definitely a reason why they needed someone like a Robin Williams character. Yeah, and for sure. And like you find out by the end of the film, everything that's happened to him in his past, you can definitely understand why he would not feel comfortable sharing that sort of information on the first sit down. Immediately, you can tell like there's other similarities when Will and Rob... What is his actual name? Sean. 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 When Will and Sean meet, there's certain reactions that Sean has that you feel like that's how Will might react if they hit a sore spot. Yeah. Kind of uh, having a bit of an outburst and at some point physical assaults. Not probably quite within the guidelines of doctor-patient relationship, but it's an interesting scene and it's, I don't, I wrote this down, it's probably not the right expression, but I wrote down there's like a little bit of a pissing battle that takes place in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's very like back and forth, very quick. And he's looking at the books and he said, you've read all these books, you're reading the wrong books. Sean goes, well, what book should I be reading? What are the right books, right? And then they move on to weightlifting. How much do you bench? (laughs) They're literally trying to one-up each other, But also what Will is doing is trying to... He's sizing him up. He's not only sizing him up, um, and this is something that when you're working with a lot of youth that come from troubled backgrounds, they like to challenge you. They see someone that someone that is an authoritative figure and they very much try to push back at you and kind of throw you off your footing to see how you would react because they're being placed in a situation like we were talking before where they don't want to. Yeah, where they don't trust you, but also where they're somehow expected to present a certain amount of respect that you have not earned yet. Yeah, And that has to be built. So one way to kind of push back around that is just to kind of see how they can throw you off. See what makes makes you tick. Reaction. Yeah, what makes you tick. Yeah, what your sore spots are. And he definitely (laughs) finds one with the painting, right? He's, I mean, he analyzes the painting and I couldn't possibly look at that and be able to tell you all all the things that he ends up telling Sean, but he clearly sees a guy who's in a little bit of emotional turmoil and not doing very well. And so he's kind of like spitballing and trying to figure out what it is that's creating that emotional reaction and like led to the painting, right? And he goes, well, maybe you married the wrong woman. And Sean stops there and says, no, no, chief, like, that's enough of that. And he's realized, oh, I hit a nerve. Let's keep going with this, right? Because he doesn't want to do therapy anyways. He'd be happy if he lost another therapist. That's another one crossed off the list. And so he keeps pushing on it. And he's like, oh, maybe she cheated on you. What happened, right? And that's where the choking scene, well, not really choking, but he grabs him by the throat. It was quite a reaction, yeah. Quite a reaction. But what I also really like too about this scene is what we were saying about before the show, don't tell. 
And there's certain things like when the camera is panning over like the bookcase, you'll also see once again, all the books that Will does comment on, but also like a photograph of what seems to be soldiers from the Vietnam War. You're not really sure whether one of them is perhaps like Robin Williams in there, but we later find out that he did counsel war vets. Mm -hmm. But what we're unclear about is whether he has one himself. Yeah, it's not sure. And there is a conversation that comes up later about that as well. Not really clear, but it definitely plays in. And there are the little details there, like you said, that all kind of add up after. But despite maybe the ending of that session not going particularly well, John agrees that he's going to meet with him again, which surprises the professor, right? Because that's definitely not how any of the other meetings with any of the other therapists have ended. And so the next scene, you see Will and Skylar going on their first date. And it's an interesting thing, actually, because he takes her to, like, it looks almost like a costume shop. It has a lot of little odds and ends and, I don't know, little toys and stuff. <laughs> it's a weird location. And then they eat street food. It's very um, not what she would maybe expect for a person from her because she appears to be like she's got some money. She goes to Harvard. She seems maybe a little bit more posh, but in her act, interactions kind of realize that she's not maybe what Will initially pegged her to be. And do you see them have like a really genuine connection? She seems to very much like kind of some of his awkward tendencies. Mm-hmm. She finds them endearing. She likes that probably because he is as awkward as he is. They're going out and doing these date stuff that wouldn't be a typical date. Something that's memorable. It's something that's fun. It's mm-hmm. that's out of the ordinary. Uh, so that's probably part of like the attraction. Because think about it. She's going out with all these Harvard guys, then they're probably all taking her out to like a nice dinner, maybe a movie, and that's just exactly. how it ends. And this one is just more real and genuine and not that stuck up kind of hotty toddy air about them. <laughs> <laughs> So then you have the next therapy session with Sean and Will. And this is an interesting one because Sean takes him outside. And it's clear that Sean did a lot of thinking after the previous one. And he was really bothered by the comments that Will made. But he said, you know what? I came to a conclusion after. And then I slept really well. He said, you might have read all these books, but you don't actually have the lived experience behind any of the stuff that you've read. So you can quote sonnets about love if I ask you, but you've never been vulnerable enough to actually be in love with somebody. And you could tell me about war based on books you've read about war, but you've never actually experienced it and experienced the heartache of like maybe losing a friend in war. And there's this other quote that he says regarding real loss and that it only occurs when you dare to love something more than you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a quote that kind of like really stuck. Yeah. And I love how you can tell how he's building up to addressing certain issues that Will has. He's easing him into it. And I think one of the next things that he says that I think earns a little bit more of Will's trust, I think, is when he tells him, you presume that you know everything about my life because you looked at a painting and you analyzed the painting that I made, right? So you think you know everything about me now. He said, that's just as unfair as me saying that I read Oliver Twist, so I know what your life has been like as an orphan. He's like, there's so much more to you, just as there's so much more to me, but we can't move forward unless you're willing to be vulnerable and open up and you're too scared to right now because you're too scared of the consequences of that. So if you want to keep talking, it's your move. And they essentially just sit in silence 
for yeah. several sessions. And this is like, I remember something that our professors used to do when they wanted to get us all to talk during our smaller classes when you get into yeah. like their third and your fourth year. It's just literally just sit there in silence until yeah. people get so uncomfortable. That someone says something. Someone says something because the first person to speak kind of like loses. Yeah, it's an interesting method to get people to talk, actually. It's pretty effective. And I feel like I'm one of those people who does not like awkward silences. So it works fairly well with me, except in the teaching situation, because as long as I know there are other people besides just me who are around, I was never the first one to break in those tutorials. I would definitely break because I hated seeing someone trying to run a class and just getting no response and making uh, you it felt empathy for them. Yeah. It makes me feel really, really bad. So I, I would speak quite a bit. I, I was prepared for class. So the, the, yeah. I think it would be a different situation if I wasn't. Uh, maybe my problem that I wasn't prepared for a class. We both know that's not true at all. I didn't do all of the reading sometimes. And neither did I, but you just got to read the synopsis and you're good. <laughs> I know exactly. Just read, the this, con- read the conclusion. I know exactly what these two chapters are about because I read the brief introduction on page one. <laughs> and the findings on like page 17. <laughs> Guys, this is always the way to do it, to be just honest. read the findings. The findings are the most important part. Skip the rest. It's yeah. okay. If you have like an actual exam on it, then sure, read like the methodology and everything else. But the findings are good enough. <laughs> that's that's the Cole's notes right there. Believe me, when you have as many readings to get through as they slammed onto us in our university, which was not the same amount that they gave people in other universities. Let's just mm-hmm. say that much. Yeah, fair. <laughs> but significantly more. you got to find ways around it. You have to read smart. Exactly. If you want to go to Harvard or MIT, you must read smart, not hard. <laughs> Lessons brought to you by... <laughs> Okay, so he finally says something because Sean's falling asleep in his chair. And he tells a joke, actually. I find it funny because it plays into what they were just talking about in the previous session outdoors. He tells a joke about flight attendant on a plane. And then at the end of the joke, Sean says, you've never been on a plane, have you? Because he's never been outside of Boston. <laughs> he's like, no, but it's better if the joke is told in the first person. And then Will mentions Skylar. He mentions that he hasn't called her yet. He actually did call her on the payphone in a previous scene, but he didn't say anything because, again, he's too scared to open up. He's too scared to be vulnerable enough. There's that, but there's also this. Sean also addresses this. There's this battle in Will's head between fantasy versus reality, infatuation versus love, superficial versus deep, Mm -hmm. and that whole protecting himself versus that vulnerability. And Sean talks about those imperfections when it comes to like a deep love sort of relationship where getting to truly know and love someone and that is intimacy and being vulnerable and willing to let someone else see and experience those imperfections and to not be afraid of them leaving you that takes a whole bunch of trust and those are all things that will has doesn't quite have it doesn't quite have i mean he's obviously not ready for a relationship at that time because he's also afraid of noticing the imperfections in skylar and kind of having that illusion kind Shattered. of yeah because as he says like right now she's this beautiful perfect smart funny woman 
and what happens if he starts to get to know her and she's not some of those things. Yeah, because people aren't those things all the time. No, sometimes people fart in their sleep and it's so loud that it wakes the dog up and wakes himself up. (laughs) But then you love him enough to tell them that it was you. Exactly. (laughs) These are the good things in life. (laughs) You know what? They could also just blame the dog. Yeah. The dog farted so loudly that he woke himself up and them up. I mean, I never experienced that with my dog. It would smell, but it wasn't loud. But I'm sure some dogs have very loud flatulence. You also had a very tiny dog. That's true. For her body weight, I would be scared if she had a window shattering (laughs) fart. That would be concerning. What I like about this scene too, though, is the fact that it's not just the therapist kind of challenging his client to be a little bit more open and work on some of his issues. You see it working the other way too. So Sean's telling him about, you know, you got to be kind of vulnerable. You have to be willing to put yourself out there. And Will says, well, you know, your wife died. Would you ever remarry? And Sean just kind of shuts down and said, my wife's dead, right? He's like, well, yeah, but that's remarriage is moving on after you know somebody let's say passes away and Sean's just not at all open to that idea about being vulnerable again with another person they see through each other yeah they see through the bullshit that each of them kind of throws out there to kind of protect themselves from these Mm -hmm. like really hard questions and they're off-putting enough that most people wouldn't try to search any deeper Exactly. So it seems like this therapy session, Will kind of takes to heart because he then visits Skylar, apologizes for not calling her, and she's working on a chemistry problem, which he solves for her in, I don't know how long it is, (laughs) can't be more than half an hour, an hour, goes back to her room so that he can take her out earlier because he really wants to go out with her again. But it's clear as they're out that he's still not being fully open about his past. He's not ready for that level of trust yet because she asked him about his family and he never mentions the foster homes, never mentions the fact that he's an orphan. Um, And he makes up a list of 12 names of his brothers (laughs) as a substitute. (laughs) And then she asks him to repeat it. And he can because I mean, he should have known better realistically. I thought about that in that scene too. I'm like, come on, (laughs) that's not a good test. I guess at this point in their relationship, Will's starting to wonder how you know when somebody is actually the one, right? So he he asked Sean this and Sean gives an answer that he wouldn't have expected. So he had tickets to game six of the World Series Mm -hmm. and he gave them up to go see about a girl who he had just met. And Will's like shocked by this that someone would give up tickets to game six of the World Series for a girl. He's clearly questioning, I guess, his relationship with Skylar. It's becoming something more meaningful. And he's starting to wonder because he's never had this experience before. How will he know if she's the right one? And if he does let himself fall in love with her, is it worth the possible pain that he might have to go through if things don't work out? Exactly. And so she's, Skylar is pressuring Will more to kind of learn about his family and his background and meet his friends. And she threatens that she won't sleep with him again until she meets his friends. So he decides to take her out. And he's, I think he's nervous at that point about what her impression of them is going to be. He's worried that maybe she won't be able to get along with them well because they're one sort of personality. He's thinking she's kind of come from a different background, might not find them as endearing as he does. 
but they end up getting along really well. And they're making like filthy jokes in the bar and everything is great. But by the time they go home, he's very reticent to take Chuck home because he doesn't want to pass by Chuck's house. And he's not taking Skylar to his house because he also does not want her to see, as Chuck calls it, that shithole. <laughs> Yeah, but also for her to find out that he does not live with two of his brothers. Yeah, and so he says, no, we're not meeting brothers tonight. When she meets his friends at the bar, Ben Affleck's character does tell a story about his uncle Marty. Yes. Yeah, about his like uncle Marty who steals a police cruiser. And what I find really funny about this is that when the professor goes to see Sean at the bar... Sean says hello to Marty and I'm like is this Uncle Marty? (laughs) Is this Uncle Marty the famous one who stole the police cruiser? I mean it could be. (laughs) I feel like it is. I feel like it's one of those things where it's like a small small town. town. They're gonna end up in these kind of like similar bars and also because Sean is you know kind of from the same neighborhood that uh, Will is. He's a Southie. Like they probably have interacted with some of the same people but it's very interesting to see those two scenes so closely together and normally they won't do that have two people in a film with the same name Name. if it's not for a reason i mean if that's the case marty's clearly doing okay he's clearly still drinking but you know presumably he's getting himself home in his own vehicle he also though i think it's in that same scene sean's telling the joke that will told him about the plane (laughs) he's he's passing it off as his own now So he clearly liked it quite a bit. But you start to see the dilemma that everybody has an opinion on what Will should be doing with his life. And you start to see kind of the divide between what Sean thinks is in Will's best interest and what the professor thinks is best for Will for his future. The professor wants him to be guided in the right direction so that he can basically get a really good job and put his incredible intellect to use and do something that benefits people. And Sean obviously wants him to do well in life, but he knows that Will's not ready for that sort of commitment and that sort of job and responsibility right now. He's still figuring out stuff about himself. And that would just be like pushing him into a position just because it's convenient for other people and not because it's necessarily the best thing for him. This becomes, I feel like, a lot more played in in a later scene. But I feel the professor in particular is very much projecting his own wants and desires and needs onto Will and almost using him as a proxy to achieve things that he cannot on his own. That's exactly what I wrote down. Professor is definitely projecting onto Will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like a very good scene. But I love the scene right after the professor says Will is at a meeting that he had set up and you cut to that meeting and no, it's actually Ben Affleck (laughs) trying to get money out of these people. He asks for a $200 retainer and someone starts taking out, I think, like 85 bucks and someone else says, do you take a check? I love that scene. It's a great admit. scene, and he's trying to use big words too in it. He's like, "Here to four. He's trying to jazz it up so that he sounds smart, and also his outfit I think is hilarious. I don't know if he like purchased a suit from. I don't. I don't know where he got that suit, but like 
you see him wearing white socks, like sports socks. <laughs> the suit pants hit really high on the leg. It's just fantastic. And he's sitting down like he's lounging in the chair as he's talking to them, right? He has no concerns about what kind of air he's giving off. Yeah, as he's shaking them down for cash. Yeah. They're and like, you have the job, but I need, a, first of all, don't just ask for a $200 retainer. I also wrote that like, down. Like, why would you ask for only 200 You ask for more. Always, always. But it's funny, too, to think these people want Will so much that not only if they, they've already offered him the job and clearly nothing great has happened in this interview to demonstrate <laughs> How good he is. They're offering it to him based on, you know, what they know, how smart he is. They've offered him the job, an $84,000 salary, which at that time would have been quite a bit too. And now they're willing to pull money out of their back pockets to provide this retainer fee (laughs) because they want him so much. I would love for once for an interview that I ever went on to be that great. Yeah, I would like to walk out with some cash, some physical cash from an interview. I'm like, sweet. Or you know what? Even if they don't give me the job, it's like, thank you for your time. Here's $200. I would become a professional interviewer. I would go to so many interviews and make a fool of myself as long as they paid me for the act of showing up there and interviewing. That could be a full-time job. I mean, you do need clothes for an interview, right? So there should be some sort of payment. I feel like we should make this mandatory. It's just like when you go to jury duty and you get a small amount of payment if you're inconvenienced past a certain number of days. There should be guaranteed retainer (laughs) fees. Yeah, you should be paid for going to interviews. And you know what? For each consecutive interview... Should it increase or decrease it? I'm going to say increase only because that's more beneficial for us. Yeah, let's say the cost increases so they don't have to make you go through all those ridiculous rounds. Yeah. Afterwards, we go on to the scene, which I really like. It's where Skylar asks Will to explain how his brain works. And he says that things just make sense. And I very much like that scene. And I actually think that the way that she kind of takes that information and just kind of accepts it Mm -hmm. um, makes me really like her as a character. Yeah. Because I feel that people feel uncomfortable in not knowing how things work or why things are a certain way. Yeah. And she seems to be okay and not fully understanding it. And you can't fully understand how another person thinks. Exactly. It seems like she's appreciative of the fact that he at least tried to explain the best Mm -hmm. way that he could, how it feels to him. It's just different for different people. It's just things sort of click for some people and for other people they don't. And it's really important to understand, and especially when you're in a relationship, how just because something is easy for you to understand doesn't mean that it's easy for the other person to understand. Yeah, and you, exactly. they may, you may never fully comprehend it, but just like accepting that. And of course, I've been bringing up the scene so much. It's that Shit's Creek scene where they're talking about the fold. <laughs> the fold. It's just like you just fold. For some people, they know how to just fold. Yeah. You when say the they word fold and they're like, I know exactly what that yeah, means. Yeah, they big. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? I don't get this. Like, explain to me. I can't comprehend. Yeah, for some people, it just doesn't click. Yeah. 
And for what it's worth, I think I admire the fact that she does not seem particularly envious or put off by the fact that, you know, she clearly is a very smart woman. Mm -hmm. She's got a lot of good schooling behind her. And for her, she has to study. In order to learn that stuff, she has to put in the effort. And for him, he could sit there for half an hour at a table outside, not having taken the class, and solve all her problems. But she's, she doesn't seem particularly put off or envious of the fact that it comes so easy to him. And for her, she's going to have to put in much more effort in her work and in her life to figure those things out. I feel like that that's a very mature response because I think I would be like, well, that's just not fucking fair. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where the happiness kind of ends in this part of the film. <laughs> I know. Because we get into a really bad fight. <laughs> Not me and you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to clarify. Will and Skylar. She's clearly at that stage where she knows that he's the one for her. And she asks him to move to California with her. And he's terrified of this. He's terrified that further down the line, she's going to basically realize that he's not the one for her. She's made a terrible mistake. He thinks, you know, maybe she just wanted to experience somebody different than the typical Harvard guy, uh, slumming it for a bit, as he calls it. And then she's going to realize afterwards that she doesn't really like him and she's going to abandon him. I yeah. found this scene very hard to watch because mm -hmm. Skylar is just being so vulnerable and yeah. she's going into this knowing that things might not work out, but she wants to give them a shot. And Will is just so terrified yeah, and he, like, closes off completely. His walls are back up because he's so yeah. afraid. And he tells her that he doesn't love her, even though he probably knows at that point that he does, which yes. is why he, ironically enough, tells her that he doesn't love her. Because he's so afraid of that fact. Yeah, and what it means. So I found that, like, to be a very heartbreaking scene. It was a really tough scene to watch and it's tough for her too. Like, I think he knows who she is as a person, but he keeps reverting back in those moments where he gets defensive. He keeps reverting back to her money, right? And he keeps seeing that dichotomy between what she has and what he has. And in all fairness to her, I mean, as she explains, that's an inheritance that she got. So yeah, she does have money, but it came at the price of like her dad passing away. And she would give it up in a heartbeat if it meant the situation was different. And she's saying, I just want to know more about you, but you're so afraid to open up to me. And he says, well, because you wouldn't want to hear what's actually happened to me, right? And so then he starts to kind of like tell her for the first time that he's an orphan and that he was abused in multiple foster homes as a kid. And it's a lot for her to take in, obviously, in that moment, because they're having a fight, a very serious fight about it. And he's telling her all of this really private, personal, sensitive information while he's kind of yelling at her yeah. and leading to the relationship breaking up. I think it's probably really hard for her in that moment to say the right thing because she says, I just want to help you. And it's coming from the nicest place. But he then turns it on as, I don't need your pity. Do I have a sign on my back that says, save me? Like, he doesn't want that either. I find that she's probably really struggling with trying to take care of him, but also trying to take care of herself and dealing with her own emotions about what's being disclosed to her, but also what she's seeing is happening at that moment where she's getting broken or it's leading to them breaking up, which is very difficult as well. She did the best that she could in that situation, I find. Yeah. So that seems to be it for them at that moment. That certainly doesn't end very well. And you can see it's just from their kind of downward progression for Will. 
he's just lost a really meaningful relationship. And I think at this point, he's really tired of having everybody else tell him what he should be and what he should do and what's the best way for him to live his own life. And so in his interaction with the professor, he basically says that he's like, you know, this is so easy for me. I'm sorry that it's so difficult for you because I'm really tired of having to explain this stuff to you, this math, right? And then he burns up one of the proofs that he solved. I don't even know what a proof is. So I'm not sure if I'm using the right Mm -hmm. verb when I talk about it, but he burns it up just to basically show like, this was a piece of cake for me. It meant nothing for me. And yet you're coming over here running, trying to extinguish the flames because it means so much to you. And that's where you also know how jealous and you know what, like even more so than jealous, envious the professor is of Will. Mm Because he knows that Will has this level of understanding of math and this potential that he doesn't have. Even with the professor having these awards and these titles and will essentially i don't even know if he graduated high school to be honest i know he mm-hmm. was like in juvie so i don't know if he even graduated high school that's a good point and how we were saying before we were talking about before about people just kind of forcing their own expectations and wants onto him and it's just like so blatant in this scene But then you go into the scene where he's talking with Sean in the therapy session, and it's clear that he doesn't know what he wants. Mm -hmm. He's got a whole bunch of expectations on his shoulder, but he has no idea what he really wants out of his life. Because Sean asks him that directly. He doesn't have an answer for it. He has a sarcastic answer. (laughs) He would like to be a shepherd, which only pisses Sean off more. Will says at a certain point in that conversation that, you know, there's honor in doing, let's say, the blue collar work. Right. There's honor in laying bricks or working as a janitor. And Sean's saying, well, yeah, that's true. You're not wrong about that. Right. And he's like, my father was a bricklayer. It's honorable work. But he said, I don't see much honor in somebody working as a janitor at MIT in the sense that you could have worked as a janitor anywhere. You chose MIT to do it. And then you secretly solve problems on a chalkboard. Where's the honor in that? And it's a good point, right? Like you could have done that kind of job anywhere. It's clear in the movie that he takes a really long train ride to get to his job just to do that sort of work when clearly what he's passionate about is the stuff that he kind of solves on the chalkboard, but does so secretly and never kind of gives up his idea or never wanted to give up his identity for. I think that something else that probably lays on Will is really the level of responsibility that's being placed on him should he do something then just kind of like be a janitor he because of the level of understanding that he has he understands the repercussions of what he does or what he could potentially do Mm -hmm. and he kind of addresses this when he goes to um interview with the national security yes I think that's something that people can kind of really dismiss that there's a lot of these prestigious, great positions, but they do come with a level of responsibility that maybe not is not okay for everyone. And it's Mm -hmm. okay if it's not okay for Will. Yeah. What's really good for him, maybe he just wants to continue learning and consuming and maybe not apply that to something like national security where that information could be used to harm other people. It's actually interesting to see that conversation, that interview. So this movie was made in 1997. And since then, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out about the NSA, right? Mm -hmm. And I think his his perception of them is pretty accurate considering everything that we found out later. 
It's true. It's a very morally dubious position. After that therapy session, we'll actually call Skylar again. And she says, I love you. And he doesn't say it back. Yeah, I wrote that down too. Yeah. That, She's that was just so, she is just really putting herself out there. Yeah. And it is such a beautiful thing to see. Yet so hard. It's not being reciprocated right now. And I think it, it's even harder for her because she probably has this feeling that maybe he does feel that way too, right? Maybe it is salvageable, but he's just not at that stage that he can. So she leaves for California. And you could see in the airport that she's looking around, right? Like she's hoping, I think, that maybe he'll show up at that last minute. A grand romantic gesture that just never comes. And that that was pretty sad too. But the next scene for me, okay, this is why I have to say it. You don't like Ben Affleck, right, overall? No, barring what happened with Justice League and his portrayal of Batman, yeah. which I did not like in, like at all. And not just in Justice League, in a Batman v Superman. I went to see this Batman v Superman in theaters in 3D, like giant, the XL screen. <laughs> What's it called? I can't um, remember. IMAX? IMAX. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) It took a while. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a while since I've been to a movie theater. And there's the scene where Batman and Superman fight. It's literally what they're talking about in the title of the film. And I fell asleep. Oh, my God. I was asleep. It was not good. How far into the movie would you say you fell asleep? Um... I can't even remember anymore, but it was later on in the film. But I think I held out pretty well, to be honest. So with the exception of how he played that character, I actually don't, I don't think I have that much of an issue with his acting per se. I think I have more of an issue with Ben Affleck. As a person? As a person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's not, um, he's got a questionable past, we'll say. He's got a lot of personal struggles, for sure. But I was curious what you thought of this scene where they're at the construction site and they're talking. Because to me, this is probably one of the most emotional scenes in the movie. Yeah, I really did like it. I thought that this is a very good friendship. And it's, I think, one of the few really genuine relationships that Will has Probably because he's known him for so long. But Chucky really wants what is best for Will. And he knows that's not him always being around. Yeah. He talks to him about the happiest moment being like when he gets out of his car up until the moment that he goes to like grab him at his door. And I think some people could kind of take that the wrong way. But I think it's more of him knowing that his friend is finding some sort of fulfillment if he's not at that door and being yeah, happy exactly. for that. Um, Every day he's kind of hoping that that's going to be the case. Yeah. yeah, because he sees that his friend could have a very fulfilling life and which he is not having at the moment, which, mind you, fulfillment can come in very different forms, which is kind of like talked about later. But his friend knows that what Will's life is now is not fulfilling him. Yeah, and it's a, it's a cop-out, like he mm-hmm. says, right? I, I think it's really interesting, though, the way he phrased it, too. I mean, everybody's been telling him this in a certain way, but it's his best friend that, like, finally gets through to him. 
and has the most meaningful impact on him. But I think the way he says it is very relatable in that he's saying, you know, for you, you go through this routine and you have your fun and, you know, you're telling me that in 20 years, our kids will play together and whatever. He's like, but that's a very different perspective from somebody who knows that they are stuck in that routine for the rest of their life. Not that they've kind of like chosen it or that's been their cop out and that's the security blanket, so to speak, that they're holding on to. But for Chuck, that's all that he can live up to in his life. He's not sitting on a winning lottery ticket. He has no other options unless he gets incredibly lucky in something that he never expected. He doesn't have a way out, but Will does. And I think that is pretty meaningful. And he says, like, don't do it for yourself. Screw that. Do it for me because I would never have that opportunity. You don't know how much I would love to have the opportunity that you have. And it's disrespectful to all of us here who don't have a choice in this and who have to live this life day in and day out. It's disrespectful to not do it for us. In the scene beforehand where Robin Williams and like the professor are kind of going at it regarding Will's issues, which is whatever is holding him back, you know, his abandonment issues with his parents and the professor is kind of taking shots at his friends. He's like, but he hangs out with them because they're loyal. I really like how they didn't decide to go the route where Will's friends were holding him down. Yeah. I think they could have really, really easily gone that way. Then mm-hmm. he needed to break away from his friends to kind of find himself or that they were just wasting his time or that there were bad influences. Yeah. They provided him with something that was, it's very necessary and like probably what even kept him from probably being, I mean, he already went to jail, but yeah, probably permanently in jail. They gave him a security blanket. Yeah. It's what he needed to like to kind of keep going at least up until that point until he was ready to move on. Imagine if he didn't even have that. They were literally the only people that he could fully trust in his life Mm -hmm. or able to offer that support that he didn't get in the family setting. Like they were his family. I found it really frustrating how how much the professor kind of like looked down on them, on his friends. Why? Because they're blue collar workers, because they're not as educated. I think that's like really unfair. And I feel that you should surround yourself with friends from various different backgrounds and Maybe all your friends aren't going to be as educated as you, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they don't bring a value to your life. Yeah, absolutely. Something. Absolutely. I think they get a a little bit more into the history between Sean and the professor in that conversation there too, because as they're arguing back and forth, the professor basically is saying how he thinks Sean is a failure because he was smarter than him in college, but he hasn't ended up with as great of a job, right? And Sean's saying, I'm happy with my life. I'm not jealous of you. I'm not jealous of the fact that you're a professor at MIT and that you have a field (laughs) award or medal. Like you can shove all that up your ass. I don't care. I'm happy with the decisions that I make and the chances that I took. And I don't see myself as a failure. And it's not a failure if you don't get the highest paying job. What counts is that you're happy with the relationships that you've established in your life and the people that you have close to you and all of that stuff. And that you've had lived experiences that mean a lot to you. 
And I think this is where, once again, the professor is kind of projecting probably his own fears and insecurities, but this time onto Sean, because he's kind of insinuating that Sean is jealous of this medal and of his position. And when really, I think it's the professor that that's jealous. He's jealous that he is not fulfilled in his life. I feel that he sees what Sean had and that he's content with that. And that's something that's really hard for him to comprehend because he's not content and probably won't ever be content, to be honest, because he's striving for something that he may never achieve. He's striving essentially to be will, but he never will be will. Yeah, exactly. He's put all the emphasis in his life on like academic success and he just can't reach the goals that he's maybe set for himself because he's just not smart enough for that because he's not a mathematical genius in the way that Will is. But Will walks in on that conversation as Sean's sticking up for him and telling the professor, he's not you. You're projecting onto Will and he's not you. And you can't keep pushing him in the way that you are. If you keep pushing, he's going to leave. I think Will overhearing that really leads to the breakthrough that Sean and Will end up having. The professor leaves and we're left in the room with a Will and Sean and they start talking about Will's file and you get more information on Sean's personal experience and how he had been abused, physically abused as a child. His father was an alcoholic and he used to provoke him so that his father would leave his mother and his little brother alone. And Mm -hmm. that's very similar to what Will would do. He provokes his bully so that he would stop bothering the women on the street. He provoked the Harvard Barney Sorry, no, that already is. <laughs> he provokes Barney. Barney, now I'm a thinking Barney. of how I met your mother. <laughs> so he provokes that Harvard douche so that he would leave his friend alone. Yeah, he's more of the fighter in that situation. Comes up and like stands up for the people that mean the most to him, right? He's got that loyalty streak in him. This, again, is also another very emotional scene in the movie. And out of curiosity, because it's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to take a moment and say, if you had to rank top three most emotional moments in the movie, how would you put them? Well, I think this one is the top one, definitely, because Sean is telling Will, it's not your fault. Everything that happened is not your fault. And Will's saying, I I know. And I think all of us have been at a moment where we know that something is not our fault. Or let's say our head knows it, but our heart doesn't. Yeah. And we, we still feel like it is. It's kind of that disconnect between like your brain and your emotions and your heart. And that was like a really powerful scene where he breaks down and I feel kind of like he does feel that it is his fault on yeah. some level. He's still been carrying that guilt in some way. Which he shouldn't. Um, no, and I think it's taken somebody from the outside to kind of confirm that for him and help him to know what maybe he intellectually always knew, just emotionally didn't feel. Um, what did you think of like that scene? Definitely the most emotional. Yeah, I teared up. I teared up. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. This movie, I, as you know, I'm not very emotional. I'll cry during movies about animals. Don't worry, I do not have any animal passing away films yeah, I, on, I can't watch on, on my list. We have veto. We have kind of certain rules around which movies or TV shows we make each other watch. Like, no scary movies for me. That's just 
I'm mm-hmm. sorry, but fuck you. No, <laughs> I do have a question on that one. Cause I have one that's a borderline. I like, I might not watch it. I do not do well in it. And I will probably like physically not be able to watch it. It's more of a thriller. I can do up until anything kind of like get out. But okay. anything that has jump scares is like a hard no. I can do a little bit of gore, but like jump scares, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, no, it's not that. I'll tell you after. <laughs> Sorry to get me. back on track. <laughs> so they have the emotional moment, right? Will has mm-hmm. the emotional moment where he breaks down and kind of like fully opens up to Sean. And then you see he goes for another job interview. And I just like to point out, because I find this really funny, all of the interviews that he goes on, he's wearing clothes that you would never go <laughs> to an interview wearing. I will say that at least when he had Chuck sub in for him, Chuck made the effort, however hideous the suit was, he made the effort to wear the suit. Yeah. Even though I'm like, isn't that kind of, I feel like how Google employees go to like an an interview now? A zip up hoodie and glasses, probably one of those pants from like Uniqlo, maybe something like that. Yeah. So maybe he was just ahead of his time. I mean, that could very well be. We should ask. We should ask Matt Damon if that's what the intention (laughs) was. But anyways, Will tells Sean after that he's actually taking the job at McNeil. McNeil was, I think, the first place that they showed that he interviewed with. And he seems like he's comfortable with that choice. But you can also tell that it's not going to be his final decision. He says he likes the boss. The boss seems nice. But you know, there's something else in the back of his mind that he really wants to do. But Sean also clearly has grown from the therapy sessions because he's going to be traveling now and he's kind of opening himself up to having new experiences after his wife has passed away. And so Will tells him, like, we need to stay in touch still. So Sean gives him his phone number and they do stay in touch at the very end. But we'll get to that. (laughs) Before we get there, there's another scene that I found. I never really found it that emotional before, but watching it this time, I did. So it's Will's birthday. He's turned 21, right? Mm-hmm. And his friends, they're at a bar and his friends take him outside and they show him the car that they fixed up for him so that he could drive to his job. And this to me, when I watched it this time, I'm like, that's just the sweetest thing. Here's these people who clearly they don't have a lot of money, right? And they certainly can't afford to buy like a new car for him or even probably an older car, a used car. They've put stuff together. They've like taken an engine and other parts of a vehicle and put it together to make (laughs) what might look like a piece of crap, but is a fully functioning vehicle for him for his birthday so that he can get to and from his job. It's just, it's very touching. I agree. They build him a car and that is not an easy feat. It's something that I see a lot of my brother's friends uh, do for each other that they've been friends since they played with each other on the streets of our like neighborhood in the summers and through school. And my brother was telling me how they wanted to get a friend PlayStation 5, which are like, you know, very expensive and very hard to find, and how the entire friend group chipped in to get another friend the PlayStation 5. And it it kind of reminds me of that, of the kind of friendship that my brother has with his friends. And I mean, if there was any question, again, that that previous point where the professor is kind of criticizing the Mm -hmm. friends that he has, there's any question as to why he has them as friends. This is clearly proof, I would say, 
they're a good group of people. Yeah, they might not be Harvard educated. They have blue collar jobs, but they're clearly very loyal and willing to do great acts of kindness like this to help out their friend. And without expecting anything in return. Yeah. That's something that the professor can't say because most of what he did, he expected to get something in return. He wanted to use Will's mind. Mm -hmm. Not to say that he didn't help Will and went out of his way to do so, but there was another motive behind that. Yeah, it was self-serving in some respects, mm-hmm. for sure. And then we go on, and it actually seems like Sean and the professor seem to reconcile. And Sean says that he will go to the next reunion. And I think it's because as much as Sean was saying that he did not feel like a failure, he did say that the professor made him feel like a failure and how like going back to those reunions made him feel like a failure. But I think he's like really come to terms with the fact that he's actually okay with this life path that he chose. And I think this is nice that their storyline also kind of concluded in a happier way, right? In Will coming into their lives, I think they both learned a lot about themselves. I think the expectation was that it was just Will who needed a whole bunch of direction and guidance and was very lost. But I think both of them were also quite lost. And having to talk about Will kind of opened them up to seeing what their own problems were and some of their own struggles and maybe how they were handling their lives quite perfectly. The last line that I wrote down was how just fulfillment can be found in different ways by different people. It's not a one size fits all. No. And there's no right way to do it. There's a good way that's unique to each person, I think. And I think it's really nice in the end. So Will ends up leaving to drive down to California. But before he does, he leaves a note in Sean's mailbox. He doesn't talk to him again after that last session, but he leaves a note there and he tells him if the professor asks about the position, just tell him, I'm sorry, but I had to go and see about a girl, which was Sean's old line that he had used when he was talking about his wife. And so Sean is, I think, very happy to see this. And I think he knows that that's ultimately the best choice for Will. And he says, as a funny aside, he stole my line, that son of a bitch. (laughs) And I think Chucky also has a really happy ending because the thing that he looked forward to most every day ended up coming true. So he shows up at Will's house, he walks to the door and he knocks and there's no answer. And he looks inside and he sees that everything looks pretty neat and tidy. Probably like Will's cleared out the place. And he's got that moment of realization. It's probably a little bit bittersweet because obviously that's his very close friend, right? Who he spent so much time with. But then you see him smile at the end and he's smiling as he's walking back to the car because that's what he's always wanted for his friend. He's wanted his friend to be happy. I have to admit, I I knew that was how the film was going to kind of end. There was, I think, various moments that were quite predictable throughout the film, but I did like that ending. Mm -hmm. I think it's predictable, but it ties in together well enough that it's not like slap you in the face. It's not that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And the other part that I really like is, so if you don't know this, the guy who plays Morgan in the movie, so he's the other friend with like kind of the curlier hair, that's played by Casey Affleck, who's Ben Affleck's brother. Oh. If you hear them, they sound the same. They sound very, very similar. And they look similar in some ways too. But I love how when Chuck comes back to the car and Will was always the one who sat in the passenger seat, Morgan's all excited now because he can move up to the passenger seat position. (laughs) But also too, I think what that shows is that they all wanted the same thing for Will. 
Yeah. And they were all just kind of waiting for this to finally happen. Yeah. And like, they're going to be okay too. They're living their lives and they've got each other and everybody had a happy ending. Yay. Yay. And that brings okay. us to the end of the film. Yes. Survived. <laughs> it actually is considering... I would say any film that's two hours is a little bit longer. Like I found actually that my personal preference for movie length is like a good hour 45. Which is not something you really find anymore, to be honest. No, I think films are way too long now. I, I think they would benefit from a little bit more editing. But these two hours to me were pretty succinct. I didn't find that it was overly long. But I have to ask, because there are a couple of things that we didn't touch on in the movie so we know that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon wrote the script together. What actually happened was Matt Damon started writing the script in his fifth year at Harvard. I didn't even know he went to Harvard. So that's kind of interesting to me. Um, he's a Barney? Yeah, he's a Barney. <laughs> I know, right? He pulls off the Boston accent so well that it's kind of shocking. <laughs> But he actually wrote it. He submitted 40 pages worth of it in his playwriting class. So at the end of the class, he was supposed to be submitting a one-act play. Instead, he showed this to the professor and he continued to work on it. And I think after he had written what would basically be considered like the first act of the movie, he then showed it to Ben Affleck because they were close friends even before they became famous and they finished the rest of the script together. And then it was initially sold to cast Rock production company, but the producers wanted to change a lot more about the film than they were willing to have changed. And they also did not want the two of them to star in the movie. <laughs> and keep in mind, like, I mean, now that would sound ridiculous, right? Because they're two A-list actors, but at the time they were just up and coming. This was really the thing that like launched them into stardom. So I it was a, a little bit understandable. And that's when, unfortunately, <laughs> in some respects, Harvey Weinstein and Miramax picked it up read it, loved it. And they were willing to let the two of them star in the film and they were willing to let them go ahead with the sort of edits that they wanted for the script. It's interesting too that initially the script had kind of, they were pursuing two sorts of storylines. So one of them was a little bit more, not conspiracy, but like it was more about a math genius and his friend who was trying to outsmart the government and the CIA. Yeah, clearly there's really not any of that in the film now. And the other side of it was that math genius and his therapist and like the work in the building that goes on there. And at the time it was still under Castle Rock and they gave them kind of a choice. They said you either pursue one plot line or the other, but not both because you're getting sidetracked this way. True. Overall, considering it was a movie that took $10 million to make, they raked in a whopping $225 million, Nice. Which is pretty impressive. Can you guess how much Matt Damon made for this film? In total, so the combination of him writing it and acting in it. 10 mil? He made $650,000. I know. Now I want to contrast this with Robin Williams, which I think this part is really hilarious. He had in his contract what looked like a flat $5 million rate for the film. Mm-hmm. And they were obviously ecstatic because think about it again, here are two up and comers and Robin Williams in 1997 was a really big star. Mm-hmm. So to be able to snag him for the movie was huge. Like, oh, wow, we're getting him for so cheap too. 
he actually, as part of his contract, had a clause that basically if the movie made over $60 million, he would get an escalating share of the profit. And I think it would go up based on how much over $60 million it made. <laughs> Considering it made $225 million, he made a shit ton of money. <laughs> how much? It didn't say specifically, but it was enough that they were happy for him for making such a good deal, but it was significantly more than anybody else made on this film. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good contract to me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, hats off to his lawyers. Yeah. And you know, considering he's arguably the best part of this film, I think that's very fair. I mean, he did. He really is fantastic. He ended up winning Best Supporting Actor for this movie, which I think was very well-deserved. Yeah, I agree. It's so really sad that we lost him several years ago now, and unfortunately he committed suicide. He was a very talented actor, comedian, yeah, really comedic actor, dramatic actor, and goes to show it's like, you know, you never really know what's going on inside someone else's head and mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's only two other things that I thought were kind of interesting because everybody wants to know if it's actually based on a real story. So one of the parts that's kind of based on something that actually happened, Matt Damon's brother, Kyle, was actually visiting MIT and one of the physicists, some professor at MIT who they knew, and he was passing by the chalkboards there because that's apparently a thing in the university, ended up writing this elaborate fake equation down on the chalkboard just for fun. None of it was real. It didn't like make sense. But people who looked at it ended up thinking it was so cool and insane that they kept it up there on the chalkboard for months and never erased it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of the basis of where that scene of Will solving the equation on the chalkboard comes from. It's like a pretty iconic scene. The other thing that I think is somewhat funny is that Skylar in the movie is actually based on Matt Damon's real life girlfriend time his name was Skylar Satinstein oh. who ended up interestingly enough marrying the co-founder of Metallica <laughs> she's a med student I'm not sure if she ended up becoming a doctor but yeah oh cool Matt Damon ended up dating the woman who plays Skylar in the movie as well I know this actress I've seen her in a couple of things Yeah, Mini Driver. And then there is a story about their breakup, and I don't want to get it wrong, but I think he, like, broke up with her on a TV show. No, Uh, I don't want Matt Damon to be, like, Ben Affleck. I think it was the most douchey thing that he's probably done. I think, if I'm correct, and I'm remembering this correctly, I think that he went on a TV show, and he basically said that their relationship was over while it was still understood, at least from her perspective, that they were in a relationship, so it was kind of like news to her. (laughs) Oh, oh, damn it. This is like... Is it ruining the movie? What it's reminding me right now is of Chrishell and Justin Hartley, which... Yeah. It's been very hard to watch This Is Us. With, yeah. uh, without kind of like being a little angry at what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard when you know, I mean, even the Weinstein thing for a lot of people kind of tarnishes the movie, this movie a little bit, right? Yeah. Because I mean, admittedly, it's a very good movie. It had a very good reception, but at the same time, you can't untangle from that the fact that it was produced by Harvey Weinstein. Difficult things that all come in one package and it's kind of hard to sort out. But having said that, get to our favorite part, well, my favorite part. How would you rate this? I would rate this, I would say an 8.5. I really liked it. 
I would agree with you. I think I'd probably give this an 8.5. It holds up. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a couple of things about the movie. In today's day and age, they don't sit as well. But having said that, I think the movie as a whole holds up as being pretty well done. Still as entertaining as the first time I, that I watched it. And it's got a good amount of heart, but also a lot of comedic moments too. And really good storytelling, I would say. Like we talked about before, a lot of the showing, not telling. It's a very good overall film. Yeah. So, Vanessa, yes, are you ready? I, I'm not because here's the thing. I don't, I have been very good this week and I don't know if my goodness will be rewarded with goodness, if my goodness will not be rewarded or it could be something that you think I'm going to enjoy and I actually don't enjoy. So I'm not ready. Yeah, I'm not sure at this moment. So I actually oh felt like a bit conflicted oh between God. two options. So I will actually let you choose, but you're not going to know what you're choosing. Okay. I'm going to let you choose between two numbers. And these numbers represent films or a TV show. I'm not going to okay. tell you which, which is on my list. So you're going to have to pick one of those two numbers and that will be what you will be watching. I like the strategy. So your choice is between the number 13 or the number 27. Ooh. In the month of March, both numbers are Saturdays. <laughs> that, that doesn't help narrow it down for me, right? I'm sure if you want to go with that method. March 13th was a good day. I got a bit of a face tan, so I would consider it to be a good day. March 27th, I don't know what the weather will be. I assume I'll be in a positive mood by that time. I would also say that as an Italian, 13 is not an unlucky number. 27, I have no personal affiliation towards. I'm going to go, you know what? I'm going to go with March 13th, but I will say the other reason why I'm going with March 13th. (laughs) You're going with dates that I haven't given you. (laughs) I know, I was just... I gotta go off something. The other reason why I'm gonna go with the 13th is because I feel like you came up with it earlier in the list. So it was something that you thought fairly early on that I should watch. Whereas 27, maybe you were struggling a little bit at that point to come up with a show or a movie. Well, that wasn't exactly what happened. It was just I legitimately thought that I had placed it on the list. Oh God. Well, don't make me rethink my choice. But it's fine. It's fine. But I'll just tell you, it's because I had legitimately thought that I had placed it on the list because there's two sides of like the list. And there's always like stickies that I leave in other places. So it's just whenever I find the stickies, I just continuously add to it. Let me ask you. So the order that I come up with them is not exactly the order that they have been placed on the list. Okay. Can I ask you a question? I mean, I've said 13. Yeah, it's locked in now. Fine, whatever. This is a bullshit game. <laughs> Play bullshit games, win bullshit prizes. Um, <laughs> my question is, in hindsight, which one do you think I would have preferred more, 13 or 27? I don't know, actually. They're very different. But you are going to watch number 27. The numbers do not represent in any way the order that you're watching these in. Like, no, it's hard for me to make an educated guess here. If something <laughs> to work with. Vanessa. Next week, mm-hmm. you will be watching Selena the movie. Oh, okay. Yes, starring okay. JLo, not the TV Netflix one, but we're talking about like the thing that blew up JLo. I'm okay with this. What do you know of it? 
next to nothing. I think here's the thing. I don't know enough of it to say who she was. If I read it again, I'd be like, oh yeah, I kind of remember reading these details before, but I really can't say that it's any information that's stuck in my brain that I can now regurgitate. So I know next to nothing. It's like kind of one of those films that I have literally watched. I don't even know how many times in my life because it's one of those films that plays on the Spanish television during actually this month of March every single year. Oh, It's been playing for like 20 years or something like that. So I've, I've watched it throughout most of my childhood. My perspective on it has changed very much throughout the years, but also mm-hmm. she is like a huge figure. And actually, um, I was just watching Superstore and America oh. Ferreira dresses up as uh, Selena in one of the episodes for Halloween and someone goes who are you and she's like I'm Celine and he's like I don't know who that is Beyonce or something and she's like no she was like Beyonce before there was Beyonce okay so she is that sort of figure within certain Latin American communities okay that should be interesting then Mm -hmm. that's a good intriguing tidbit for me so I think that brings us to the end of our episode and we will see you guys next week we survived another week (laughs) Bye. Bye.